Hi, Dave Emery here. This is, for the record, program number 1206. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 13. This is being recorded on October 1st of the year 2021. Uh, before we begin, as always, three links. One of them will enable you to subscribe. By the way, these links are at the top of each for the record program description and at the top of each food for thought post one of them will enable you to click on uh, one of the links when you click on it will enable you to subscribe to the comments uh, most of them made by Perifacto, our contributing editor some made by others the second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made or done of for the record by sister station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to subscribe to the program, WFMU, sister station WFMU, is podcasting the program, and there is a link that you can click on to obtain that podcast. Last, but certainly not least, there is a link to click on to get the 32 gigabyte flash drive with my uh, now 43 years of programming on it, plus an old, or not an old library, but a library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. That uh, 32-gigabyte flash drive will be updated shortly to bring it up to the current uh, production-slash-recording schedule. Now, uh, to the subject of this program. In our last show, we uh, took a look at uh, the last uh, gasp, so to speak, of uh, the... Chiang Kai-shek Kuomintang dictatorship in China per se, and we also took a look at the tremendously effective kleptocracy that was being manifested by the various members of the Sung family on both sides of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the family were composed of the children of Charlie Sung, an American-educated Chinese who uh, became very successful in China and had a number of daughters for our purposes, the main uh, number of children, the main children, the most important ones, Ailing Sung, his eldest daughter, married H. H. Kung, one of the most important banking and financial figures in the Kuomintang government. Uh, her younger sister, whose marriage to Chiang Kai-shek she arranged, Mei Ling Sung, became Madam Chiang Kai-shek. Their brother T.V. Sung was at one point one of the, the richest man in the world and continued to wield tremendous influence on both sides of, of the Pacific Ocean, and his realm of operations or sphere of operations ranges from high-level corporate dealings in the U.S. to outright theft of uh, U.S lend lease material that was uh, supposedly being made available to the Chinese government to fight the Japanese. Much of it was purloined by uh, people like T.D. Sung or by some of Chiang Kai-shek's Green Gang graduates of the Wampo Military Academy, who basically were uh, a combination of military officers and gangsters, and they collaborated openly with the Japanese. And among those areas of collaboration was the sale of 
lend-lease materials to the Japanese, and some of it simply went to the black market. One of the things that facilitated the outright theft of lend-lease materials, including at least one shipment of uh, 60 American battle tanks, which was never shipped at all because the tanks were never made. Uh, the money went right into the pockets of T.V. Sung, and that is because his brother T.L. Sung became a a key Chinese official initially in charge with Lend-Lease on the China side of the connection, and he then moved to the U.S. and was in charge of the U.S. side of the Lend-Lease program. After the war, he became a secretive consultant to the Treasury Department, very possibly in connection with the uh, theft uh, of gold bullion from uh communist-occupied or assumed to be communist-occupied China in collaboration not only with the Treasury Department but the CIA and uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Madam Chiang Kai-shek as well. We looked at that in our last program, uh, basically accessing material from the book Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. What we're going to look at uh, in this program, uh, we're going to be moving into the concluding phases of this series. And as we do so, we're going to take a look at things that are not just dealing with China proper, but Asia in general, and the components of what was to become the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, basically the Asian component of the former World Anti-Communist League, and that was South Korea, uh, a Japan that was never effectively uh, purged of its fascist and imperialist connections. In fact, they were put right back into power, and they're the dominant element in the Liberal Democratic Party, which has held power in Japan for all but four years since the 1950s. The other component is the Kuomintang, which uh, has been based or was based during the Cold War on the island of Formosa, became the nation of Taiwan. Taiwan now is one of the bones of contention. It is claimed uh, politically and historically properly by China as a breakaway slash colonial territory. Uh, I hope that they do not attempt to uh, force a reunification militarily, that would result in a third world war. And I think that is exactly what elements in the U.S. and Japan and Australia would like to see. Uh, remains to be seen. I doubt that they will try that. They are certainly rattling some legal sabers in and around uh, Taiwan, not unlike the way that uh, Russia has raffled legal sabers vis-a-vis Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, My opinion is that they are reminding uh, people in Taiwan and elsewhere in Asia and uh, people in Ukraine and elsewhere in Eastern Europe that the stakes are very high and that if things go wrong, uh, World War III and the end of our civilization is the result. We will see. However, uh, in our last program, we took a look at things that were going on vis-a-vis uh, Taiwan and uh, the 
goings on sub rosa with regard to uh, Chinese gold bullion uh, during the Chinese Civil War that uh, reached its climax in the period of 1945 to 1949. There are three areas of anti-colonial struggle, I should say, that overlapped not only World War II, but ultimately what we have called the Cold War and uh, the hot wars in Korea and Indochina, respectively. Uh, Korea was a Japanese colony from 1905 on. There was an anti-Japanese resistance, which uh, during the Second World War and actually prior to that uh, was grouped around the Korean Chinese, uh, the Korean Communist Party. There was a similar uh, struggle in China, which we have spoken about between uh, what had been the two factions of the Kuomintang following the 1911 uh, Chinese Revolution, led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen. That was the Chinese communists uh, versus the Kuomintang fascist, narco-fascist dictatorship of Chiang Kai-shek. That civil war was won in 1949. And uh, also in what was French Indochina, uh, there was, again, an anti-colonial struggle which became an anti-Japanese struggle during the Second World War uh, with the Viet Minh guerrillas, as they were known at the time, receiving support from the OSS, America's World War II Intelligence Service. Uh, however, the U.S. reneged on an agreement to oblige France to... Uh, give independence to the colony of Indochina, and there, there, there then followed a, an American, largely American-financed French war against the Viet Minh guerrillas that was won by Ho Chi Minh's forces, and then there was a period of what uh, should have been a vote to reunify uh, North and South Vietnam, uh, and uh, that vote, however, actually to vote on the reunification, that vote was never uh, brought to fruition. Uh, the U.S. basically knew that uh, Ho Chi Minh enjoyed overwhelming popular support in what was Vietnam and would have certainly defeated uh, the government in the South. Uh, the well, I should say the well-known Vietnam War uh, followed. Uh, the Korean War followed as well, and although it was not told to, certainly to the, the, the fighting men in the trenches, so to speak. In fact, their officers, their generals, uh, were not told the truth uh, when they were attended military academy or the requisite war colleges and respective war colleges as well. What basically happened was that behind the scenes and at the highest levels of transnational corporate finance, you had people like the Dulles brothers, Allen and John Foster Dulles of Sullivan and Cromwell, and people like Douglas MacArthur and the people around him, MacArthur himself, being the son-in-law of a prominent Morgan financier named Edward Stokesbury, who was also a backer of uh, fascist causes in the 1930s. Uh, ultimately, basically, what happened was at a financial and uh, 
monetary level, uh, the U.S. joined the Axis uh, on both sides of the, the, well, on both sides of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. This, however, was not told to the American people. It wasn't even told to most of the officer corps as well. But basically, uh, that combat, as we will see, uh, expanded from World War II into the Chinese Communist Civil War, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. That is quite a mouthful to uh, give voice to in one setting, but we're going to be uh, talking about this during the concluding several portions of the program, because the history of Chiang Kai-shek's narco-fascist government is what basically spawned the present uh, situation, and it is inextricably linked with the high-level power politics and financial dealings in Asia at the time. One of the things that we're going to look at uh, right now, before we take a look at the China lobby, per se, as it became manifest in the 1950s, and I would note that the China lobby and the battle cry of, quote, who lost China, unquote, was a major political banner during the McCarthy period, and Joe McCarthy's right-hand man, his political hatchet man, Counsel Roy Cohn, was the political mentor to, and for many years, lawyer, chief lawyer for Donald Trump. We're going to go into the China lobby and the political, journalistic, economic, and uh, national security links to that uh, later on in this program. However, we're going to uh, review some things that took place during the Chinese Civil War in the immediate aftermath of World War II that were never told to the American public. I doubt very seriously that most of the U.S. officer corps learned any of this, either in uh, uh, the West Point Academy or uh, the Annapolis Naval Academy or at the Air Force Academy or any of the requisite war, I should say, respective war colleges. One of the things to understand about the uh, going communist, unquote, of China, was that as many people had warned, including State Department officers who were aware of what was really the real nature of Chiang Kai-shek's regime, as well as people like T.V. Sung himself, one of the linchpins of the Kuomintang and the China lobby, they warned that uh, if Chiang Kai-shek did not fight the Japanese invaders whose brutality was well, just enormous. We took a look at that briefly in our last program, uh, talking about information about the rape of Nanking. It is worth noting that not only did Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang not fight the Japanese, they collaborated in many ways with the Japanese. And after the combat of World War II, tens of thousands of Japanese troops fought on the side of the nationalist Chinese and also United States Marines against the Chinese communists. And it was things like this that helped to polarize and propel the Chinese public into the, in the direction of support for Mao Zedong. 
as Tingling Sung, uh, the widow of Sun Yat-sen, Madam Sun Yat-sen, noted, uh, she said about uh, Mao Zedong, I distrust all politicians. I distrust Mao Zedong less than I distrust the others. And uh, with people like Chiang Kai-shek and Madam Chiang Kai-shek and the Suns and the Green Gangs and General Tang and Po and uh, Big Ear 2, a.k.a. 2 Sheng, and... Uh, Tai Lee and the Ku brothers, one of whom was the Shanghai waterfront boss and the other was the, the hero of the New Fourth Army incident who was selling U.S. lend-lease to the Japanese and ambushed the Chinese New Fourth Army. Uh, it was not hard to make the selection on the part of the, the, the it was not hard for uh, Madam Sun Yat-sen, nay, Che Ling Sun, or Ching Ling Sun, to make that selection. It wasn't hard for other people in China to do the same thing. And one of the things that helped them to make that decision was the following. Reading from The Nightmare Decade, The Life and Times of Senator Joe McCarthy by Fred Cook. Again, bearing in mind that Joe McCarthy's right-hand man and legal uh, hatchet man was Roy Cohn, the political mentor to and lawyer for Donald Trump. Uh, when the combat of the Second World War ended and the combat of the Chinese Civil War followed almost seamlessly on that, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of Japanese troops were fighting alongside the Kuomintang against the Chinese communists. And these were the same Japanese who had uh, visited such horror on China uh, during uh, the Sino-Japanese and Second World Wars, that the two heavily overlapping. I would note in passing that one of the graffiti, graffitos, some of the graffiti that appeared in Chinese characters during the uh, unrest in Hong Kong uh, made references to Shina, unquote, S-H-I-N-A. That is a vicious anti-Chinese slur that was minted by the Japanese during the, the Sino-Japanese War. It is uh, not a, uh, a a term that one would expect most Chinese to use, and it was an echo of the kind of thing that we're about to look at. Again, from The Nightmare Decade, The Life and Times of Senator Joe McCarthy, authored by Fred Cook, published in hardcover by Random House, uh, in the copyright 1971 by Fred Cook. When the war ended, China was in utter chaos. Thousands of Japanese troops wandered around the countryside fully armed with no one accepting their surrender. John F. Melby, M-E-L-B-Y, a State Department officer, in a day-to-day diary he kept at the time, reflected in bewilderment upon this anomaly. On December 27th, 1945, he noted, quote, I still don't understand about the Japanese. Officially, they are being disarmed, but the fact is they never seem to be. In Shanghai, 15,000 still walk the streets with full equipment. 
in Nanking. By the way, that was the World War II capital of the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek. In Nanking, the high, actually it was Chongqing. Uh, it, it was at one point in Nanking, but then, uh, Chiang Kai-shek split for Chongqing and left Nanking to the Japanese and the rape of Nanking. In Nanking, the high Japanese generals are bosom buddies of the Chinese. That, of course, is the uh, Kuomintang. In the north, tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers are used to guard railroads and warehouses and to fight the communists. If you ask what this is all about, the answer is either a denial or, in more candid moments, a shh. We don't talk about that, unquote. In another entry on January 30th, 1947, a good 16 months after VJ Day, Moby noted that, though it was being kept, quote, very quiet, unquote, there were, again quoting, 80,000 holdout Japanese troops in eastern and northwestern Manchuria who are fully equipped fighting the communists, unquote. Uh, in answer to, quote, who lost China, unquote, it was things like this. Basically, there was a more or less seamless continuity of combat between the Allies versus the Japanese in China to the Japanese working with Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang and the U.S. against the Chinese communists. One more time. In Nanking, reading again from the Nightmare Decade, in Nanking, the high Japanese generals are bosom buddies of the Chinese. In the north, tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers are used to guard railroads and warehouses and to fight the communists. If you ask what this is all about, the answer is either a denial or, in more candid moments, a shh. We don't talk about that, unquote. In another entry on January 30th, 1947, a good 16 months after VJB, Moby noted that, though it was being kept very quiet, unquote, there were, again quoting, 80,000 holdout Japanese troops in eastern and northwestern Manchuria who are fully equipped fighting the communists, unquote. And again, it was things like that American officers and fighting men and the American public were never told about this. However, the Chinese knew about this, and uh, it was representative of the types of behaviors that basically led to the ascent of the Chinese communists in China. Now, noting that uh, there were tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers are used to guard railroads and warehouses and fight the communists, it was while uh, traveling along some of those railroads who were, whose control was contested between the Japanese and puppet troops who had worked with the Japanese and the Kuomintang that a guy named John Birch was involved in uh, traversing. Uh, basically, John Birch had been the intelligence chief intelligence officer allied with the American Volunteer Group. That was uh, General Claire Chenault's Flying Tigers. He then became part of the OSS contingent in China. 
and he was eight days after the J-Day was recruiting Chinese puppet troops who had fought with the Japanese against the Allied side during the Second World War to fight against the Chinese Communists. Basically, he was uh, the late John Birch, that is to say, was centrally located in this dynamic. Uh, we talked about this at length in AFA program number 11, uh, quoting from the written description for AFA program 11 about the John Birch Society. Society figurehead John Birch was the intelligence officer for General Claire Chenault's Flying Tigers in World War II, subsequently serving with the OSS China contingent. Birch was killed recruiting Chinese collaborationist troops to fight the Chinese communists. These collaborationist forces had served the Japanese during World War II. Coming little more than a week after the end of the war in the Pacific, his death was heralded by the American right as, quote, the beginning of World War III, unquote. The point being that the late John Birch, who had uh, worked with General Claire Chenault, part of the anti-Stillwell-Pro-Chang faction uh, uh, in the American uh, contingent in China. He had worked with General Claire Chenault and then worked with the OSS, and he was recruiting Chinese puppet troops who had collaborated militarily with the Japanese when he was killed by Chinese communist forces. Basically, he became uh, something of a martyr. I suspect he may have been set up. That, that, that is purely conjectural. He was reported to be a fairly high-strung individual, uh, I think the mission on which he was sent, it smacks of him being offered up as a sacrificial lamb, but that, again, I want to emphasize most emphatically, that is conjecture. It was in this very same period, the Chinese Civil War, in which we have the uh, elements of CIA working with Kuomintang and uh, helping to spirit out uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese gold bullion before it could become uh, the property of the Chinese communists. Uh, the same Chinese civil war in which tens of thousands of Japanese troops, 80,000 in western and northwestern Manchuria alone, uh, actually, eastern and northwestern Manchuria alone, uh, working on behalf of the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek and his American backers, fighting the Chinese communists. And it was in the same time uh, that we see John Birch recruiting collaborationist forces who had fought with the Japanese to work with the Kuomintang and with the U.S. against the Chinese communists. Uh, there is a great deal of uh, publicity at the present time about the alleged genocide of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province in China. We've done programs for, well, well over a decade now, close to 20 years about the Uyghurs. I think the first program I did about them was, for the record, uh, 248, actually no, uh, for the record, 348, and that was in uh, early 2000, that was in the early 2002, as I recall, and in uh, the almost two decades 
since then. We've done a great deal of work about the Uyghurs. They are a Turkophone ethnic Muslim minority in Xinjiang province, and they have been the focal point of anti-Chinese covert action and agitprop, as it is called, for almost the entire Cold War period. The U.S. and Germany being the two most uh, active among the pro-Uyghur propagandists and covert action sponsors. The destabilization effort in Xinjiang province involves two basic fascist subgroups, one of which is Islamist fascists uh, associated with al-Qaeda and uh, with ISIS, and the other are secular pan-Turkist fascists associated with the National Action Party or National Movement Party in Turkey and their youth wing, the Grey Wolves. Uh, this is an explicitly fascist political movement, and the Grey Wolves have been the uh, stay-behind element, the fascist guerrilla troops who were developed and sponsored by NATO to fight communists in the event of a takeover in any of the NATO countries, Europe, or in the case of Turkey, obviously, that is Turkey. We have looked at uh, the Pan-Turkist movement in numerous programs. I think the first and most substantive of the historical elements was in AFA program number 14. The genesis of the Uyghur separatist movement and the patriarch of that, the fellow named Isa, I-S-A, Yusuf, Y-U-S-U-F, Alptekin, A-L-P-T-E-K-I-N, was the patriarch of the Uyghur separatist movement. His son, Erkan Alptekin, founded the Uyghur, the World Uyghur Congress, which is one of the major U.S. intelligence-funded destabilization-slash-regime-change organizations that is at the epicenter of uh, the propaganda that we are being fed about the, quote, genocide, unquote, against the Uyghurs. The patriarch of the Uyghur separatist movement, again, Isa Yusuf, Alpekin was a political and military ally of Chiang Kai-shek during the Chinese Civil War. So it is during this same period and in this same concatenation that we see the genesis of the contemporary Uyghur separatist movement. Reading now is an excerpt from the, an article in the Gray Zone blog of March 5th of 2020. It is by Ajit Singh, A-J-I-T, last name S-I-N-G-H, inside the World Uyghur Congress, the U.S.-backed right-wing regime change network seeking the fall of China, unquote. And in the section called The Far-Right Roots of the Uyghur, quote, Human Rights, unquote, movement, we read, Behind its carefully constructed human rights brand, the Uyghur separatist movement emerged from elements in Xinjiang which view socialism as, quote, the enemy of Islam, unquote, and which sought Washington's support from the outset, presenting themselves as eager foot soldiers for U.S. hegemony. The founding father of this separatist movement was Issa 
Yusuf Alpekin. His son, Erkan Alpekin, founded the World Legal Congress and served as the inaugurations, as the organization's inaugural president, president, beginning again. The founding father of this separatist movement was Isa Yusuf Alpekin. His son, Erkan Alpekin, founded the World Legal Congress and served as the organization's inaugural president. The senior Alpekin is referred to as, quote, our late leader, unquote, by the World Legal Congress and current president, Dokan Isa, ISA. Born at the turn of the 20th century, Alpekin was the son of a local government Xinjiang official. He received a largely Islamic education as a youth, as his family intended for him to be a religious scholar. During the Chinese Civil War that raged between the Nationalists and Communists from 1945 to 1949, it was that same Civil War that saw thousands of Japanese troops fighting on the side of the Kuomintang, and it saw the death of uh, John Birch as he was attempting to recruit Chinese puppet troops who had fought the Japanese to uh, join the, the Japanese compatriots in the Chinese Civil War. One more time. During the Chinese Civil War that raged between the Nationalists and Communists from 1945 to 1949, Alpekin served under the Nationalist Kuomintang administration in Xinjiang. Throughout this period, the Kuomintang received massive military and economic backing from the United States, including billions of dollars in cash and military hardware, along with the deployment of pins of thousands of U.S. Marines in an effort to quash the Chinese Revolution. It was in that same Chinese Civil War that we looked at the covert operation to spirit out billions of dollars in Chinese gold before it had become the property of the Chinese communists. Continuing. At the same time, according to historian Linda Benson, Alpekin, quote, became more active in both the Kuomintang and national-level politics and met several times with Kuomintang leader Chiang Kai-shek personally, unquote. For Alpekin and fellow travelers advancing Turkic nationalism and the region's eventual independence, quote, equally important was the necessity of protecting the land they called East Turkestan from Soviet and Chinese communism, both of which were viewed as real and present dangers to Islamic peoples, unquote. One more time. For Alpekin and fellow travelers advancing Turkic nationalism and the region's eventual independence, quote, Equally important was the necessity of protecting the land they called East Turkestan from Soviet and Chinese communism, both of which were viewed as real and present dangers to Islamic peoples, unquote. For the Kuomintang, Uyghur activists like Alpekin make prime candidates, beginning again, for the Kuomintang, Uyghur activists like Alpekin made prime candidates for Xinjiang's provincial administration. As Benson explained, quote, the essential qualification for such appointees was that they be anti-communist and anti-Soviet, unquote. In his memoirs, Alpekin revealed that he, quote, sought to eliminate all Russians 
and leftists in the government, unquote, and said that, quote, schools were also encouraged to include religious instruction in their curriculum, unquote. A fervent opponent of miscegenation, Alpeca worked to prevent intermarriage between Han Chinese and Uyghur Muslims. During his time in government, religious fundamentalists, quote, attacked the houses of Han Chinese who were married to Muslim women. The mob abducted the Muslim wives, and in some cases, the unfortunate women were forced to marry old Muslim men, unquote. Although the violence killed numerous Han Chinese, it proceeded without any government response during Alpecan's tenure. As the Civil War wore on, Alpecan grew frustrated with the declining power of the nationalists and met with U.S. and British consuls in Xinjiang, beseeching the twin powers to deepen their intervention in China and the region. With the coming victory of the Chinese Revolution, Alpecan went into exile in 1949, as did Chiang kai by the way. Alpecan eventually settled in Turkey, emerging as the preeminent leader of the Uyghur separatist movement throughout the latter half of the 20th century. He set up to enlist international support for the cause of East Turkestan independence, courting leading U.S. officials and far-right neo-Ottomanist ideologues in Turkey. And we have spoken about the Grey Wolf and Islamist attacks on Han Chinese in Xinjiang province in numerous programs. Our most recent discussion of this uh, for the records 1143, 1144, and 1145, and also uh, for the records 1178, 1179, and 1180. Uh, during one of the concluding programs in this series, we're going to revisit the destabilization of We're going to take a look at the historical Nazi and German imperial links to these various forces in Tibet, in Xinjiang province, and elsewhere as well. We're also going to take a look at the contingency plan to launch a nuclear attack on the Chinese communists. What we're going to look at uh, next, and this will probably pick up the balance of the program, we may even have to continue this uh, in our next program, and that is the development of what has become known as the China lobby. Uh, after the debacle uh, of uh, the, the Kuomintang and its collapse during the Chinese Civil War for reasons we have spoken about, uh, and for reasons that even TV Sung, one of the linchpins of the China lobby, warned about in the early 1930s when Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang fell. Uh, there arose a huge reaction to the American abandonment, however temporary, of Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Harry Truman, by the way, launched, as we looked at in our last program, launched an investigation of the misdeeds of T.B. Sung and company, and it was an awful lot of that misappropriated capital that became the seed money for the China lobby and for the fortunes of T.B. Sung. We're going to come back to that in this program, but what we're going to be looking at here is the manifestation of the China lobby, a combination of nationalist, 
Chinese political agitation backed by tremendous amounts of money, the money of the Sung clan, uh, the money of H.H. Kung, part of the Sung dynasty, as uh, Sterling Seagrave uh, termed it. And we're going to take a, look, uh, take a look at a lot corporate, journalistic, political, and national security forces. What became known as the China Lobby was an engine of political activity and activism, and it was, again, one of the central elements in the McCarthy period. And again, I stress that uh, Joe McCarthy's right-hand man, his political hatchet man, his political gopher, was Counsel Roy Cohn, who was the political mentor to and the lawyer for Donald Trump. Turning once again to the landmark text that has anchored this series called The Sung Dynasty, that's S-O-O-N-G, by Sterling Seagrave, it may still be in print. There are both hardcover and softcover editions available. There is apparently a Kindle uh, version available from Amazon. In any event, whether it is still in print or whether it is only available through used book services, I heartily recommend it. Bear in mind that in 1985, there was a Kuomintang hit team put together in Taiwan to come murder the Seagraves for having written this book. Uh, one of their friends, who was a high-ranking CIA official, uh, gave them a warning about this and told them, basically, take off or you're going to get killed. Uh, that is something to keep in mind, though, at what Sterling Seagrave spoke of in the conclusion of the book, and something we will read in the conclusion of the book, is uh, who will speak for the victims. Sterling Seagrave did that, and he paid the price. Turning now to Sterling Seagrave's account of the China lobby in the Song Dynasty. The American press at the end of the 1940s was just getting accustomed to the sound of a new editorial policy, quote, tell Chang he is finished and that the U.S. is finished with him, unquote, when the Chang government poured millions of dollars into a counteroffensive. Zealous Americans who joined the pro-Taiwan crusade became the fundraisers, the organizers, the telephoners, the legmen, the gophers, the publicists, the congressmen, the tycoons, the hosts and hostesses of the shadowy society that was called the China Lobby, unquote. Its management, its direction, and its primary finances were not American, however. The China Lobby belonged to the Sung clan and the nationalist Chinese government. The people involved thought they were working for the greater glory of God or for, quote, the survival of the democratic system, unquote. They were really working for a Chinese public relations campaign. By the way, when I speak, when I talk about younger listeners not being able to remember the 
publicity blitzkrieg is the only way to put it about Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek. It, it goes back to the 1930s, well before I was born, but I grew up during the Cold War. And Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Nay Mei Ling Sung, the sister of TV Sung, they were basically marketed in the U.S. as uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it was that extreme and that unqualified. And, uh, boy, was that incorrect. I would note, uh, as we get into this discussion of the China lobby, that the distortion of events Chinese that was taking place in the 1930s and 1940s has continued since, and when we hear about this or that today, it should be seen through the lens of this enormous propaganda machine, which obviously is still uh, very much alive today. And uh, I'm, I'm going to begin again with this first paragraph here. The American press at the end of the 1940s was just getting accustomed to the sound of a new editorial policy, quote, tell Chang he is finished and that the U.S. is finished with him, unquote. When the Chang government poured millions of dollars into a counter-offensive. Zealous Americans who joined the pro-Taiwan crusade became the fundraisers, the organizers, the telephoners, the legmen, the gophers, the publicists, the congressmen, the tycoons, the hosts and hostesses of the shadowy society that was called the China Lobby, unquote. Its management, its direction, and its primary finances were not American. The China lobby belonged to the Sung clan and the nationalist Chinese government. The people involved thought they were working for the greater glory of God or for, quote, the survival of the democratic system, unquote. They were really working for a Chinese public relations campaign. Everybody in the 1950s heard the term China lobby, unquote, but nobody knew exactly what had been encompassed and who was involved, quote, if it had been known by Moscow rather than Taipei, said the French journalist, everyone involved could have been hung for treason. Actually, one more time, I misread that. If it had been known by Moscow rather than Taipei, said the French diplomat, quote, everyone involved could have been hung for treason, unquote. Marcus Childs wrote, quote, no one who knows anything about the way things work here but a powerful China lobby has brought extraordinary influence to bear on Congress and the executive. It will be hard to find any parallel in diplomatic history for the agents and diplomatic representatives of a foreign power exerting such pressures. Nationalist China has used the techniques of direct intervention on a scale rarely if ever seen, unquote. Part of this campaign was to pour gasoline on the McCarthy witch hunts. Chang's government used existing American corporations headed by men who shared its viewpoint. It hired advertising agencies. It created dummy corporations as blinds for propaganda. It set up, it set up a propaganda ministry of its own in the United States. It cultivated influential, sympathetic Americans who set up bipartisan, non-profit, unquote, committees that served as pressure groups. Few activities were directed personally by the Sungs. That was no longer necessary. 
the Chinese technocrats who guided daily operations were a new generation of Sung proteges slickly groomed on Sung techniques. The New York public relations firm Allied Syndicates Incorporated counted among its major clients the Bank of China with H.H. H. Kung as director. Another public relations firm, Hamilton Wright, worked for six years as a registered agent for Nationalist China, writing and distributing stories, news articles, photographs, and movies to create a favorable image of Chiang Kai-shek and his regime. One clause of the right organization's contract with the Nationalist Chinese government guaranteed that, quote, in 75% of the releases, neither the editor of the newspaper nor the newspaper reader has any knowledge where the material originated, unquote. One more time. I think this is true basically of today. Uh, I'm seeing the same BS from uh, people who should really know better. In 75% of the releases, quote, in 75% of the releases, neither the editor of the newspaper nor the newspaper reader has any knowledge where the material originated. The Herald Tribune service, for one, owned by Henry Luce's Republican friend Jacques Whitney, fed this spurious material to unsuspecting American newspapers for years without ever identifying the source. That source, again, Hamilton Wright, uh, working for years as the, a, a registered agent for Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. Continuing. TV Sung's wartime Universal Trading Corporation was listed in 1949 as a foreign agent working for the Chinese government with assets of nearly $22 million. The Chinese News Service, based in Taiwan, established branches in Washington, New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, and distributed millions of copies of a journal called This Week in Free China. It also circulated news stories and feature articles thinly disguised propaganda to fill the columns of American papers. Taiwan's Central News Agency, which went to great lengths to emulate the Associated Press, spent 654 million U.S. dollars in only three years, 1946 to 1949, producing articles on Chang's anti-communist struggle and on lavishly entertaining American editors and correspondents in the U.S. and the Far East, more than $200 million each year. Again, that's in late 40s and early 1950s dollars. That is worth all. That's a whole lot more money than $200 million today. Continuing. Small wonder that a large segment of the American public believed that Chiang Kai-shek was the essence of virtue and his cause was a just one. Similar amounts were spent during the Korean War and the periodic crises over the defense of the Formosa Strait. Guesses at the grand total spent by Taiwan to stupefy Americans ran as high as $1 billion per year. And again, that's in the late 40s and early 1950s. That's a huge amount of money. Taiwan exercised a particularly strong influence on American newspapers of the far right, notably the influential Oakland Tribune owned by Senator William F. Noland, a dominant figure in West Coast politics and one of the most powerful Republicans in Washington. 
His Capitol Hill colleagues called him, quote, the senator from Formosa, unquote. Another unabashed Chang supporter was New Hampshire's William Loeb, far-right publisher of the Manchester Union Lever, who backed Senator Bridges in the China lobbyist, B-R-I-D-G-E-S. Others were Roy Howard of the Scripps Howard Newspapers, John Bailey of ABC News, more about him later, and, of course, Henry Luce. Biographer, Luce biographer Swanberg gives an assessment. Luce now saw the most grandiose project of his lifetime in danger of ruin. Wrapped up in the ruin was not only the fate of China and of Christianity and the Asian hegemony of the United States, but also his own peace of mind and reputation. Chang in China was to have been the crowning of a decade and a half of planning in the Chrysler Building and Rockefeller Center, and of countless of thousands of words of loose press propaganda. The nightmare rise of Mao in China brought a powerful loose comfort strategy. For one thing, the China Institute of America, founded as a haven for Chinese students, now was registered with Luce as trustee as a foreign agent working for the nationalists. Work newscaster Robert S. Allen reported, quote, One of the most remarkable aspects of this remarkable foreign raid is the fact that it is being masterminded by certain well-known Americans. Henry Luce has been propagandizing and agitating for another $2 billion U.S. handout for Chang for a long time. Again, that's in the early 50s. And in Washington, practically the whole loose bureau has been working full blast as part of the Chang lobby. Many of the activists in the lobby were people whose families had worked in China as missionaries, parenthetically including Henry Luce, and now thought their heritage was being thrown away. Among them were the directors of the American China Policy Association and the Committee to Defend America by Aiding Anti-Communist China, which issued blizzards of paper urging the U.S. government to provide more aid to China. There were powerful people on the committee's board of directors, David Dubinsky of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union and Second Vice President of the American Federation of Labor, James Farley, Chairman of the Board of Coca-Cola Export Corporation and former Postmaster General. The American China Policy Association was headed by Alfred Kohlberg, that wealthy importer of nationalist textiles and friend of Claire Booth Luce, Henry Henry Luce's influential wife. Last, but far from least, was the Committee of One Million, which included Henry Luce and its membership. It was created in 1953 to keep China's... One more time. It was created in 1953 to keep communist China out of the United Nations. Later, it was reborn as the Committee for Free China. It was still lobbying for grassroots support for Taiwan, even after U.S. relations with Peking were normalized in 1979. Among its members were 23 senators, including Senator Noland, Mike Mansfield, Edward Berkson, and Jacob Javits, plus 83 congressmen, a number of generals and admirals, and a plethora of tycoons. These groups 
were periodically supported by campaigns waged on in Shang's behalf by the Executive Council of the AFL-CIO, the American Legion, the American Security Council, by the way, founded by uh, Charles Willoughby, the American Conservative Union, and the Young Americans for Freedom, basically an offshoot of the John Birch Society, founded by former CIA officer William F. Buckley, the right-wing publisher. Continuing, to many conservative organizations, Taiwan became synonymous Beginning again. To many conservative organizations, Taiwan became synonymous with anti-communism. In the atmosphere of the 1950s, the fear of Red China kept normally sensible people from wondering where all the money was coming from. Despite the ebb and flow of their personal relationship with the Chang regime, the Kungs and Sungs remained the primary pipeline connecting American special interests with Taiwan, one more time. Despite the ebb and flow of their personal relationship with the Chang regime, the Kungs and Sungs remained the primary pipeline connecting American special interests with Taiwan. A. Ling and H.H. H. Kung, T.V. Sung and Mei Ling Sung Chang devoted considerable energies to the lobby and sometimes gathered for strategy sessions at the Kung estate in Riverdale. Aveling and H.H. stayed in exile in Riverdale from 1948 on. As principal director of the Bank of China's New York City, New York City branch, H.H. was driven into Wall Street two or three days a week. He spent days of his time working at home. He spent, he spent the rest of his time working at home. Columnist Drew Pearson one of the few journalists who maintained an interest in the songs after they went into exile called the Bank of China, quote, the nerve center of the China lobby, unquote. Through its offices, Pearson remained, through its offices, Pearson reminded his readers, many millions of dollars were transferred from the nationalist government to underwrite the propaganda blitz. Quote from this from uh, one of Drew Pearson's columns, Dr. Kung's knowledge of American politics is almost as astute as his knowledge of Chinese finance. And well before he entered the Truman cabinet, Kung picked, quote, Lewis Johnson as his personal attorney. It may or may not be significant that later, when Lewis Johnson became Secretary of Defense under Harry Truman, he was one of the staunchest advocates of American support for Formosa. Dr. Kung has been a caller upon popular Senator Stiles Bridges of New Hampshire, and the Senator likewise has been active in urging aid to Formosa and the Chiang Kai-shek exiles. When Bridges ran for re-election in 1948, this again still quoting from Drew Pearson, he listed a $2,000 campaign contribution from Alfred Kohlberg of New York, the front man for the China lobby, and a friend of Dr. Kung. It is significant that Senator Bridges not only has voted and made speeches in favor of China lobby policies, but extended one of the greatest possible favors to the Kung Sung dynasty. In 1948, the same year that Bridges received his contributions from Kohlberg of the China Lobby, Bridges appointed ex-Senator Worth 
Court of Idaho as an impartial representative of the Senate Appropriations Committee to go to China and make a, quote, impartial, unquote, report on the nationalist government, unquote. Bridges at the time occupied the, the potent post of chairman of the Appropriations Committee. We will continue with and uh, re-emphasize key parts of this in our next program, because this is the China lobby. However, we are all out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1206, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang Part 13. This is being recorded on October 1st of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.